Welcome to Global River Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit globalriver.org forward slash resources. How's everybody doing today? Doing good? Did you guys enjoy worship? That was wonderful, wasn't it? Man, wasn't there just a river flowing in here? Good Lord, man. You just feel the Lord all over the place, man. I mean, there's really nothing like it, is it? It's so, so good, so wonderful. So just want to thank everybody for being here this morning. Excited to see all the youth and young adults. Come on. Jesus. Yes. It's the inheritance, man. They're going to run this thing. You know, we can't do it forever, can you? I got to be passing this thing on, man. It's so good to have you guys here. So excited. Amen. So I just, um, I wanted to share a word this morning. And um, man, there's just so much going on in my heart right now. I, um, man, I just see the Lord doing so many things. Um, I really felt it was strategic this morning what the Lord was doing in worship. And um, I, I just caught a glimpse. We were down here praying, but I was hearing what Lisa was sharing, um, specifically about that shame, that, that call about the shame. And I feel like that's something that so many people struggle with, right? A lot of us struggle with it at some point or another. And sometimes it's just hard to throw that thing off. But um, that's exactly what I feel like the Lord was highlighting here today, because I feel like some of us here today are really carrying some shame in some areas, and it's really hindered our walk with God. It's hindered some things for us to really tap into the fullness of what he has. But um, I, just, I just have good news this morning, and uh, I feel like the Lord is just going to take away that shame. Come on. It's all good. Um, I, so I, I was going to, so the topic, I did do a handout, I don't know how well, I'll stick to it, but um, I, I really felt the Lord to talk about leadership. Pastor Tom mentioned I'm, I'm in a program right now, um, leadership at school online, and uh, it's been very, very intense, but uh, it's also been rewarding so far, and um, it's just flowing real well. So I was doing some studies, some assignments, and um, I was praying about uh, today a few weeks ago, and the Lord just really zeroed me in about leadership. And um, I wanted to speak to you about leadership this morning because I really feel like this is a house of leaders. I feel like Global River Church, this community, is a community of leaders. Now, you may be saying, well, I don't lead anything. You don't, it don't have to be that way. You could be in school and believe in Jesus. You're already marked as a leader. You know, you could be on a construction job running a small crew. You're a leader. You could be in a corporate executive world. You have a team underneath you. You're a leader. Ministry, I mean, there's so many things. A parent, a father, mother, you're a leader leading children. There's a a level of leadership that we all are engaged in right now if we really take an evaluation and look at that. And so I just kind of want to share some some traits. This is not like a real deep message. This is something simple, but I feel like we have to be reminded of it sometimes, you know? So I feel like what makes a good leader? I, I wanted to ask that question. What are some traits in a good leader? So I started out with having about four or five traits, and then I was like, there's just no way that could all fit in one Sunday. So that, this is gonna be for a later time. But today's trait was really clear, and I wanted to talk about the trait of honesty. Honesty. Pray with me real quick. Jesus, we just thank you right now for all that you've done, all that you're doing, and all that you will do. Come, Holy Spirit, right now and just begin to speak to us. 
unravel any thoughts, any preconceived ideas, and let us be open books for the next few moments. Write your word on our hearts, Lord. Make this thing stick so we don't forget it. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I want to talk about honesty and leadership. So I'm going to, you know, we're family, right? So I'm going to pull, pull you into my world for a minute. This is one of my textbooks right now. It's uh, written by uh, Cows and Posner, two guys. It's called The Leadership Challenge. It's a really good book, Leadership Challenge. Um, they, they did a study, and they opened up this book about it, and I just thought it was really wild. It's a study that they did for over 30 years. It's a 30-year comprehensive study. And in this study, they surveyed over 100,000 people in different organizations, companies, churches, ministries, all over the world, not just in America, but in Asia, Africa, India. They they took a, a global survey, and they've been doing it for 30 years. The, the assignment of the, of the goal of the survey was they wanted to find what top leadership traits that followers look for in the people that lead them. They wanted to know what is the solid traits. So they compiled a list of the top 20 of the, of the uh, traits. I'm not going to go through all of those. But what I found really interesting is that the number one trait that was consistent for over 30 years across the globe is the trait of honesty. Followers crave honesty in the people that lead them. Come on, isn't that powerful? A 30-year study, and it's the same every year, every decade. Honesty is huge. So I wanna talk a little bit about about honesty. I wanna share with you a story out of the Bible about King David and an unknown guy a lot of us don't know. His name is Mephibosheth. How many have ever heard of Mephibosheth? Come on, man. Some of you have. It's okay. How many have never heard of Mephibosheth? It's okay. Raise your hand if you've never heard of Mephibosheth. I just like saying that word, Mephibosheth. (laughs) Mephibosheth. It's like, you know, it just rolls off the tongue. But, I, you know, I've heard, the, I've heard the story, I've heard the background of the story, but um, I found something in this thing so intriguing, so captured, because I was going to do so many other things, but it just captured me uh, this, this past weekend as I was studying it. So I want to share that story with you. And, um, and I just, I, what I learned from that was that King David was a man of honesty, he would, that's what one of the marks that made him of a good leader is he was an honest leader. And so I want to explore that. What does it mean to be an honest leader? And how did David walk with honesty? So if you have your Bibles, go real quick to 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And we're gonna, I'm going to kind of, you don't do this, but I'm going to read some bits of Scripture today just to give us context for the story because I think it's really important. But 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. It said, King David asked, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So what's going on in that part of the story is David has just became king pretty much of Israel. All the tribes have been united under his leadership. He just led a procession of worship in the nation 
by bringing an ark, the ark of God, into Jerusalem, setting a tent up, and establishing over 20,000 musicians to worship the Lord day and night, night and day, for 24 hours a day. I mean, could you imagine being in that procession, being in that moment? Things are happening for David's leadership and administration. The mighty men that he used to counsel in the cave are now like his top officials. And not only that, they are going into the land, taking the land, defeating the enemies of Israel, and expanding the kingdom. It's a good day for David. It's a good moment for Israel. But in chapter 9, verse 1, God brings back something to David's remembrance. And David knew that he had to show kindness to the house of Saul, which was the previous king, the house of his enemy. Why? Because he made a covenant with Saul's son, Jonathan, his trusted friend. Real quick, I want us to read a little bit about that. Go real backwards, 1 Samuel chapter 20. This is probably, I don't know the exact time frame. Guess, guess maybe 10 to 15 years, somewhere in there prior. In this moment, in 1 Samuel 20, it's a different, it's a different kind of moment for David. He's not the king. He's running rampant. Saul is after him. You know, he used to be the general in Saul's army, right? But Saul, what? He didn't like David, did he? The Bible said he was jealous and envious of David, and he was going to kill him. Now, Saul had a problem because he had a son named Jonathan who was a prince and the heir to the throne. And Jonathan and David became what? Best of friends. So here, David is trying to explain to Jonathan, listen, your dad is insane. Yes, he's lost his marbles. He's trying to kill me. He doesn't want me to be, the, he don't even want me to be in the leadership. He is just out to destroy me. And Jonathan, that's his daddy. You know, that's kind of a tough spirit to be. So he's probably like, you know, I don't know. I don't buy that, David. So in chapter 20, they meet. Now look at here, verse one. Then David fled to Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, what have I done and what is my crime? Jonathan, how have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life? Now look what Jonathan says. Never, you're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. Here it is. Look at this. Why would he hide this from me? Good leaders walk in honesty because they don't hide things from their followers. Saul didn't have that type of relationship with his people. He held things in. So, you know, you go on down, skip down to verse 8. It says, but as for you, show kindness to your servant. Now, this is Jonathan talking to David. For you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. And if I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said, if I had the least linkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? Hmm. Skip on down to verse 14. At the end of that conversation, it goes like this. But now show me unfailing kindness. This is Jonathan to David. Show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Just remember that. Don't ever cut off your kindness, not just from me, but from my family. 
Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Jonathan knew the handwriting on the wall. He knew David was going to be king one day. And he's saying to David, look, when you become king, because what is it? It's customary when the, old, the new king comes into the old king and there's a little bit of fragmented leadership. Ooh. They gone. They're going to the gallows. Their heads are going to be gone. You know, things are going to happen. So Jonathan is saying, look, I want to make a covenant that either me or my family would always be taken care of. Skip down to verse 24. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon festival came, the king sat down to eat. Now, just walk with me, because I just want to tell this story. It's so good. You see, David put Jonathan to the test, and he said, Jonathan, when you go back to Saul, they're going to have a banquet. They're going to have a table set up. And I'm not going because I know your dad's going to kill me. I got to tighten it up. Oh, got static. Here we go. Is that better, Jim? There you go. Come on. <laughs> tighten it up. Yeah, that's a good word. I need, I need to tighten it up. I need to tighten this belt up. Talking about the banqueting table, starting to keep me focused, Lord. <laughs> oh, Jesus, you're so good. Okay, so they're at the banqueting table, Saul, right? So now they're at the table. Saul is like, you know, David is telling Jonathan, listen, let's put your dad to the test. I'm not going to show up. And if I don't show up, if I don't, if I don't come, and he asks about me, but he doesn't get angry, and I'm paraphrasing, that's going to be a sign that then, then your dad's not trying to kill me and it's going to be okay. But he said, Jonathan, but if you go there and you go ahead and tell him I went home to make the sacrifice in Bethlehem to my home. And if he gets angry, then that's a sign to you that he's going to kill me. So now let's read that verse 24. So David hid in the field. And when the new moon festival came, the king, Saul, sat down to eat. And he sat in his customary place by the wall opposite of Jonathan and Abner sat next to Saul, and David's, and David's place was empty. In verse 26, Saul said nothing that day, for he thought maybe something happened to David to make him unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. And then Saul said to his son Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal? Either yesterday or today his tone starts to change. Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. Let me go because our family is observing the sacrifice in the town of my brother and they have ordered me to be there. For if I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away to see my brothers and my family. This is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared at Jonathan, his own son. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Don't I know that you have signed, sided with the son of Jesse to your own, here we go, shame. And to the shame of the mother who bore you. Whew, those are tough words from a father. You know, you know what I believe he did? I believe King Saul put a, a curse of shame on Jonathan right in that moment. Why should he be put to death, Jonathan said. What wrong has he done? Jonathan asked for his father, but Saul hurled a spear at Jonathan to kill him. 
then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Skip down to this last part, verse 41. Now Jonathan is riding to the field. He's going to tell David. Now reality is setting in to Jonathan. David was right. He, David was right. My dad is going to kill him. This is not good. So Jonathan, uh, David got up from the south side of the stone. In verse 41, he bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. And then they kissed each other with a holy kiss. And they wept together. But David wept the most. Jonathan said, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. Man. I mean, can you feel that moment? Here they are weeping and crying. David is lost. He's lost everything. He knows now Saul wants to kill him. He has a place at the table, but he's not welcomed. Have you ever felt that way in your life? Have you ever felt that even though you have a place somewhere, you're just not welcomed? Do you know what it's like to be part of a community, but you never fit in? Do you know what it's like to be that way? That's what David was experiencing, man. That's where he was. But let me tell you something. 2 Samuel, go back to chapter 9, verse 1. Everything flipped. David is king. Peaceful moment. But God brings back this promise to David. David asks, is there anyone left now in the house of Saul who I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And now there was a servant of Saul's house named Ziba. And they called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. And the king asked, is there no one still left in the house of Saul to high can show kindness to? Ziba answered the king, mm, there is still a son of Jonathan. God, I just can't help but just cry just every time I read this. He is crippled in both feet. He's unable to walk. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, in the house of Makar, in a place called Lodabar. Lodabar. That's very important. Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar into the house of Makar. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, came, the son of Saul, the son of Jonathan, came to David he bowed down before David to pay him honor. I mean, I mean can, you, can you get that moment? A crippled man who can't even walk. He is an enemy of David. And they bring him, they search for him. He's homeless, number one. He's lost all his land and his inheritance in the war between Saul and David. This man has nothing. And he's brought before David and he bows down. And David says to Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied, don't be afraid, for I will surely show kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I'm going to restore all the land that has belonged to you and your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, who am I that you should notice me as a dead dog? 
And the king summoned his servant Ziba. He said, I've given the master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. Now, Ziba, you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him to bring him the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, the grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Skip down to verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant, I will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So again, number two, look at this. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. My God, I mean, come on, Jesus, Woo. as one of the king's sons, here is an enemy, an enemy who he takes and searches after. He doesn't just bless him, give him a little offering. He just doesn't say, hey, you do, how you doing, man? Come. He welcomes him into the palace. He says, I'm going to restore your inheritance that's been lost. Even though your father left you and abandoned you, even though your father didn't want anything to do with your grandfather and all of that stuff, he said, even though you've been abandoned, you grew up in a fatherless home, you grew up without an inheritance or a heritage, you felt forgotten, I'm going to bring you to my table. I'm going to bring you to my table and I'm going to give you my seat. Woo. Mephibosheth. You know, David didn't have to do that, did he? He had, no, he didn't have to do that. But what is he doing? He's modeling honesty. He's dealing honestly with Mephibosheth and the covenant that he made with somebody who's dead. He didn't have, that thing was, he was dead. He's fulfilling that covenant, that promise. He is walking in honesty. When we walk in honesty, we're able to identify with other people. I want you to think about that. Honesty supersedes personality. Some of you may be introverted. Anybody introverted in here? Raise your hand. It's okay. Introverted. How about extroverted? We got some extroverts, then we got a whole bunch of in between. Honesty, and when we walk with honesty, it supersedes personality. And that's how an introverted person can still connect and identify and build community and relationship with somebody that's different from them because they walk in honesty and they don't withhold anything. David could have withheld, but he didn't. He opened up his palace and he brought him in. I think that's pretty, pretty neat. I think that's, that's something. How do David walk in honesty? He didn't withhold the promise. So now here's something else to think about. This is what I, it gets really good, I felt. So I, I was like, you know, I've heard, Mephib I want to know what Mephibosheth means. This is a wild name, Mephibosheth. So I looked up what the name means, Mephibosheth. <laughs> and it literally means shame or the mouth of shame. Mephibosheth's identity was crafted in shame. He was the epitome of shame. Look what he said. Look, do you see how he viewed himself? I'm a dead dog. Why would you want to do anything with a dead dog? This, he had no value. He had no confidence. He had, he had nothing like that inside of him. But yet, David showed him incredible kindness. So I, I thought about Mephibosheth. You know, how did he get crippled? The Bible says that when Jonathan and Saul were killed in the same battle, 
the nurse that was caring for him, he was five years old, he's a little boy, and she heard about the battle, and when the news came, she ran away from the enemy, then she didn't want to get killed, and she's carrying Mephibosheth, and she slips and falls, and he dashes his feet on rocks and land, and it cripples his feet, and that's how he becomes crippled. On the same day that his dad and granddad are killed. And so he has to live with somebody. He's basically homeless. He's got to be taken care of. He's, he's, he's like almost like an invalid. You know, someone's got to care for him and take care of him. And, and I was like, wow, man, Mephibosheth. But then I thought about us today. I mean, how many of us live and dwell in shame? I mean, shame's a funny thing, isn't it? Especially when you're walking with the Lord for a while and maybe you hit a side bump or, or a road bump. And all of a sudden, that shame comes in like a cloud. It just hovers on you, and it just weighs you down. It takes the joy out of your life, and you just don't want to talk to nobody. You just don't want to, you definitely don't want to go to church. You don't want to be connected, and that's a shame, man. It just, it just weighs you down, but there's always room at the king's table, even if you're full of shame. That's just good news. Okay, here's, here's something that really stuck out to me. Mephibosheth was from where? Lodabar. Say it with me. Lodabar. It's another one of those words. For some reason, that thing gripped me, and I said, I have to figure out what Lodabar means. So I started researching Lodabar, and I found a two-part Answer that rocked my world and changed my whole understanding of something. You see, Lodabar was a place, but Bible often uses places to communicate revelations and words to us. So Lodabar in the Hebrew is actually used, that word debar is used 2,500 times in the Old Testament. It's a very common word, actually. And debar literally has a two-part meaning. The first meaning of the bar is the order of Melchizedek. I want, I want you to think about that for a moment. The order of Melchizedek. How many of you ever heard of Melchizedek? It's kind of a funny figure. Is he man? Is he God? What's going on? Lodabar means order of Melchizedek, and the second meaning says, or the sanctuary of the Holy of Holies. Turn with me real quick to Hebrews 7. My God. I just want to connect some dots and then let's just see what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7. I don't know about you. Now, I've read the Bible and studied a lot of things. But when I came to Melchizedek, I always scratched my head. No about anybody else. I just scratched my head. Now, without going there, in Genesis, Melchizedek is actually the king of Jerusalem king of Salem, and when Abraham rescues Lot and he goes to war with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, right, it says after that battle that Melchizedek goes out to meet Abraham and he brings him bread, come on, and wine. He sets the table up for Abraham and he draws him in and he blesses Abraham with an incredible blessing. And Abraham responds to Melchizedek by giving him a tenth of the plunder, that's what the Bible says. Now, read Hebrews chapter seven because 
Hebrews makes a distinction between the Aaron the priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood, and the New Testament priesthood that Jesus does for you and I. As it says, Jesus, like Melchizedek. All right, chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. And also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, my goodness. Without genealogy or beginning of days and end, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think of how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of all the plunder. Skip down to verse 6. But this man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi. You see, Melchizedek, this figure he's talking about, he wasn't a priest. You had to be born in Aaron's genealogy, the Levitical priesthood, to be a priest. You had to have that qualification. But even before he was born, Melchizedek was. So Melchizedek was a priest and established a priesthood before the priesthood in the Old Testament was even birthed. Are you tracking? So what type of priesthood was Melchizedek? This man, however, didn't come from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham. He blessed him who had the promises. Because here it is in verse 7. Look at this. And without a doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. Mephibosheth was blessed by David and Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. Verse 11, here we go. But if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood on the basis of the law to give to the people, then why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there has to be a change in the law. He of whom these things have said to belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that the Lord descended from Judah and not Levi. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what has been said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation and rules and a system, eyes approach of genealogy and ancestry, but one who has become on the basis of power in an indestructible life. Bring up Mephibosheth from Lodabar. The order of Melchizedek. When David brought Mephibosheth into his presence, he was setting an order into the kingdom. And the priest of Melchizedek and the order of a Melchizedek is not about praying in a prayer room, though that's part about it. The order of Melchizedek is the order of Lodabar. It's the order of taking the cripple and the lame and the broken and the hurting and the downtrodden and putting them at the king's table. Regulations in the church will not cut it. Program, they just won't do it. It says, hey, this was given for a time, this or Aaron order was given for a time, but we needed something else. We needed perfection. 
And the only way that we can access perfection is through Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, who makes a way for you and I. Jesus is Melchizedek because he takes you and I who are the Mephibosheths of the world and he takes us and he puts us at his table, restores our inheritance, secures us in our identity and sets a plan in motion that changes history. Come on. Jesus. For the longest time, I couldn't understand Melchizedek, and I couldn't understand Mephibosheth. But when I saw the parallel, it exploded in me. Isn't that like the heart of our God? That's the order of the priesthood God wants to establish at Global River. Do you hear what I'm saying? You see, this was an order. This was an institution. This was a whole new, it said even the law had to change to accompany Jesus and what he did. There was a shift in everything. The way we did things, the way everything, everything shifted around to accommodate the new order, my Lord, coming forth. Mm, Jesus, you know, yeah, David could identify with Mephibosheth, couldn't he? He knew what it was like to have a seat but not welcomed. He knew what it was like to have nobody on his side. He could understand. He could identify. He was honest. And that honesty translated into kindness. And let me tell you something. As you are leaders, and you are leaders, everyone in this room, I believe it, you are a leader in some regard. And my challenge to you today is to walk in honesty and to deal from your heart with people as you want to be dealt, as you want to be dealt. You see, David understood what it meant to have friends in his life that were committed only to get gain, only to use him for whatever. He knew all that mess, all this mess that comes in our lives, all these relational uh, that we go through. God knows, but how do we overcome it? We walk in honesty, we're transparent, we don't hide anything. I just, I'm just a firm believer in that. The less you have to hide, the less, or that, the, the whatever, the, the, the less the enemy has hold in your life. But let us learn from this story. Because David, through this act, created an environment. Listen now. It created an environment. Let me put it this way. It birthed a culture of trust. Of trust. Where people could be vulnerable. Where people could be honest. Where people could take off the mask. Where people could really let people in on who they really are without playing a game and just without, this is what it is. That's what this thing did. And don't you know, it always flows from the top down, don't it? So as this thing flowed, imagine how many other Mephibosheths out there were brought into that reality because of what one leader did. We don't understand. See, when Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder to Melchizedek, he was sowing in. He was sowing in. 
to a future priesthood that he didn't even know was coming. He was showing into his own descendant, Jesus, from his bloodline, who would become Melchizedek. He was showing into that thing. And when we walk in honesty, we sow into the community, into the generations. We sow goodness and truth. We sow the word of God. We sow the presence of God into the realities that we all are walking in when we walk in honesty. Come on. The other part of that meaning was in the inner sanctuary to the holy of holies. Lodabar. I believe doing that kind of thing is what generates the presence of God. I believe as a church, as a body, corporately, individually, as we really seek to do this thing, walk in honesty with each other, in our jobs, in our lives, I'm telling you, man, God is going to put an order in this place. He's going to put an order of the Holy of Holies, a tabernacle of the Most High. Where the presence of God would dwell in this place day and night, night and day. Not just to build something, but to transform something. Mephibosheth's life was transformed. It was completely turned around. Jesus is Lord. Kind of. Whew. As a leader, how was David transparent? He shared his table, his house, and his resources. It's hard to do that sometimes, isn't it? There's <laughs> a measure of wisdom that comes with that. But I think we always have to be open and ready to share our table, our resources, and our house for what God wants to do. It just does something. It propels something. It moves something. Vulnerability. How did David make himself vulnerable? He made himself vulnerable because he took an enemy and made him a son. He took an enemy. He didn't just make him a servant. He just didn't make him a friend. He made him a son. That's what God does with us, man. He makes us sons and daughters. I mean, just. Mephibosheth was so crippled. But David was able to look beyond that, wasn't he? He didn't look at the weaknesses in front of him. He looked beyond that. He didn't even stud him. Because here's the key. If you don't hear anything else this morning. To honesty. Walking in honesty means being kindness and showing kindness without wanting anything in return. I want you to think about it. Just one moment. Just think about that. Because it's real. I'm just be honest. We're walking in honesty. I mean, have you ever had that? Somebody in your life, a friend or some, you know, a good person, and it's automatic. You think, wow, I know if I help this person or if I bless this person, they're probably going to do this for me. 
and it's just going to help. It's going to be good. It's going to be like really good. Whew, what a temptation. In the church, right, leaders, God gives us vision. Oh, what a temptation to you look at people to say, how are you going to fulfill this vision? Now, there's a part to play in that because God brings in people to fulfill the vision and do work together. But as a leader, we have a greater responsibility to not see people that way and to use each other that way. We have a greater responsibility to connect you into the vision so that we can encourage you to do what God has called you to do in a community together. And I'm telling you, what happened, we build trust across the board. We build trust across the board. I'm going to end with this. Just three reminders. One, two, three reminders that help us to practically build trust. How do you build trust? How do you build trust right now in your relationships? How are you building trust? Sharing. Number one, sharing. Just like we just said, always have that attitude of sharing. I tell you what, my kids, I got five of them down home in the play area, in the back room, and man, they'll get to go. Sometimes they don't want to share. Sometimes I don't want to share the TV with Amber. She's like, yep, that's right. But I'm serious. Having a heart of sharing is what helps us walk in honesty, develops trust. We share our time. We share our resources. We share our lives together. Come on. Second one is investment. I just want to remind us, investment is huge. Not just in money and finances. That's a big part of it, but more than that. It's investing in in each other's time, energy. It's investing our hearts together. It's investing in projects, right? When we invest with one another, we build trust with one another. Third, Third one is acceptance, Acceptance. We have to accept people for who they are and where they are. Not on the basis of how they're going to make us better or how they're going to fulfill the vision, but we have to begin to accept people for who they are and where they are. Come on. I mean, did David put a requirement on Mephibosheth? I don't read it. He didn't say, Mephibosheth, you got to do this, this, and this. He accepted him as he was for who he was on the basis that he loved him from his heart. I mean, that's the gospel. It's that simple. The the hard part is not allowing our selfishness or ambitions to cloud it up, to keep it open. Acceptance. Acceptance. So I just want to just tell you guys, I just really felt that Walking in honesty, I feel like there's a charge on us now. The house is being marked to walk in honesty, to deal kindly with one another, and to to do the right thing.